Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. As always, and before I introduce my next guest, I just have to start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show and to remind and really encourage you to send any of your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at RainCanada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family, people you know, and yes, even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thank you again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is sincerely appreciated. My guest today is a good friend of mine, Joel Sherlock. If there is such a thing, I would call Joel a textbook serial entrepreneur and business leader. He is a born connector and has been building great teams and delivering the expertise to ex- execute and get things done. He's been at the helm of nine successful startups and corporate exits, including one of BC's top private real estate brokerages, a national first action sports e-commerce company, and a successful corporate consulting firm and a number of private equity funds. Joel's time is now focused on Kelowna, BC's based Vitalis Extraction Technologies, which we're going to talk about for sure today. And that is a best in the world industry leader in manufacturing industrial supercritical CO2 extraction equipment, where he's a chairman and co-founder, as well as the Spectrum Asset Leasing and Doventy Capital. Now, Doventy Capital is a Vancouver-based private equity fund he co-founded to support professionals in the growing legal cannabis market, which is all part of Vitalis client base, and as well, Spectrum Leasing in Toronto is an asset-based back lender designed to support entrepreneurs and manufacturers in the world's fastest growing market. Without any further delay, my guest. Joel Sherlock, welcome to the show, The Everyday Millionaire. Good to see you. I'm watching you on Zoom, so welcome to the show, man. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. Me too. I'm stoked because we got lots to talk about. And uh, I was going to kick off. What do you do? Tell me. Give me your 30 seconds elevator pitch. <laughs> and, and if it goes to 60 or 90 seconds, that's fine because you got a pretty big uh, resume. I, yeah. You know what I mean? Ultimately, I, I tell people, I, you know, what, what do you do? And, and my usual answer is as little as possible. 
Yeah. And like right now it's not working out that way, but ultimately for me, we build teams and, and I want to make myself obsolete and then continue to build new things. But that doesn't tell me that's kind of a philosophy. <laughs> so tell me what the hell yeah. you do. Ultimately, I mean, it, backing like finance investments and then starting enterprises all the way from real estate now into manufacturing and equipment finance. Okay. So we're going to get to the real estate part, but let's start with this manufacturing, this vague manufacturing thing that you're putting out there, <laughs> man, you're going to be a tough, you're going to be a tough interview. If you, uh, if I have to keep dragging this stuff out of you, okay, I'm going to get, we're going to get into the weeds, buddy. 30 seconds is the impossible part. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's my fault. You're right. I set you up. I didn't set you up to win really well. Okay, so let's slow down. Talk about manufacturing. What do you do? Well, I, I guess I can let me let me tell you the whole story of okay. what I do. I mean, I, I'm I'm a real estate guy. Like my background is finance, um, UBC and Harvard educated, and then started flipping houses, and then started a brokerage, and you know was fully into that asset. And and I I love the real estate world. You know, I'm still a licensed realtor, although I'm not, uh, I haven't shown a house in over a year, still have a team and, and a very active group there. But in 2011, when, uh, we had a, a commercial building that we owned and it was $10 a square foot is what we were trying to get for it. And we got an offer for 12 and I thought that's terrible negotiating. Why? And the guy said, well, we have a license to grow cannabis from the government. Let me just interrupt here because, okay, so you're in Kelowna here too. We should, we should make a point of that. This Got is in it, Kelowna, true. correct? Yep. Yeah. Okay, go. Kelowna. And so, you know, I, I laughed as a real estate guy. That was like the kiss of death to, to a building or a house. And, you know, that's what we're always worried about tenants having a grow up in your house and you lose your financing. So I, I ushered them out of my office and, uh, you know, but they had pieces of paper they told me were a business license and a letter from the chief of police. And I sat on the, uh, the Kelowna Scottsdale business council board with the mayor at the time. So I called him thinking we were going to have a good laugh about it. And he knew them by name and I just about fell out of my chair. So that was kind of my first exposure to, to that program from the government. So we, we became a landlord to the, their cannabis medical collective. And then, you know, ultimately they got another license and we invested in a piece of real estate for them. And, and I just saw myself as only a landlord. And then they introduced me to a friend of theirs who owned a plant food company and they were looking to expand and, and wanted the bigger building. And um, we met the management team, learned about the business and ultimately great margins, really good business, but they needed some expansion help. They needed some uh, assistance. So we ended up making an investment uh, in the company. It was the first time we took equity in one of uh, you know these, these companies and helped them scale the plant food company and then we later sold that to Invictus, which is a publicly traded cannabis company. And then I was kind of hooked. I mean, it was just, it's the wild west. And there was this whole emerging market. You know, I don't know how to grow. I, I'm, I'm not a consumer. Uh, you know, I drink lots of wine, but uh, cannabis puts me to sleep. So I really love the medical side of it, starting to hear these stories. So we started financing equipment in the space, becoming landlords. You know, all of the tangible hard asset lending things and uh, just things I understood, but but looking at how we could operate within the, the legal markets that were growing. So before you merged onto the cannabis side of it, you know, you talk about plant food is what I heard you say. Yep. Now, was it plant food for cannabis or what was the plant food that you were building at the time? Be or, or was it all related right from the start to 
the cannabis of so now these, emerging cannabis. Yeah, they, these guys had a business that that made plant foods, and they had like twelve SKUs. Nine of them were specific, you know, fertilizers formulated for cannabis, which they had great margins and a, and a good business, and they were just expanding. So, it, you know, for me, it was okay. Well, we're going to invest in some real estate and invest in some inventory, and we'll just help you build this business out. And and uh, you know, from there, we got into financing some of the equipment that's used in some of the extraction processes. And to me, I was like, okay, well, that's a piece of equipment, you know, like a house if you're doing some mortgage lending, but a little easier to move around. And so we started financing some of that equipment, you know, taking the equipment as security and and the rates were more appealing than than what we were getting in the mortgage lending world. So, you know, it was asset lending and I, I was, you know, it was a higher risk, but I was comfortable with it. And then from there, we, uh, we endeavored to go and create our own machines. And I approached some oil and gas guys and ultimately I wanted them to just build machines and I would buy them from them. Um, but one of their partners didn't want to, didn't want to get into the, the market. So, we, you know, it took me six months to talk the engineer into quitting his job and joining me in a, in a manufacturing startup. So you know, in, in, in the three minute elevator pitch, there okay, it is. Well, okay. Now we're getting into the, a little bit of, you know, we're putting a little bit of meat on the bone. So because I, I have a number of, you know, listeners that are real estate focused, uh, give me a yeah. little bit of just a background, a little bit on that building, because, so these guys that come in offered you 12 bucks a foot and because they were worried that you weren't going to lease to them. Was that the main concern or, so tell me a little bit about the building. What was the building? Just, uh, like, 12,000 square foot warehouse. We had a welding tenant in it. You know, they were pay sometimes not pay. And, you know, ultimately they had asked a ton of landlords and basically they had asked 90 people and they'd got 89 no's. And so they just started to put a premium on it. So people would actually hear them out and learn about the program. And, you know, ultimately I had to call the bank and see if they were going to pull our mortgage. And, you know, that was an interesting conversation because you call someone at the Royal bank and say, Hey, if we take a legal cannabis tenant, we've checked, we have their license. I've got a copy of it. You know, are you going to call the mortgage? And they're like, Oh, I'm going to have to talk to the manager. Um, you know, so that was, there was a whole process to it, but ultimately they were great tenants and, you know, they upgraded the power service. They upgraded the water. They put new fencing and new lights, like, they invested a significant amount of money into our property and then they paid on time every time. So it was a a refreshing shift from the previous tenant. So because this is about learning as well, and I want to get into your extraction machines and the manufacturing that you're doing and all of that conversation, but I want to really stop for a second and think. So you had a welding company in there, 12,000 square feet. How long had you owed the building up till then? Three years. Three years. So you'd bought the building... You put a, a, a welding company in there. They're hit and miss on their rents. They're probably, you know, so it sounds like they're not the best tenants. Certainly not doing upgrades, maybe. Yeah, definitely not. And, and if they were doing upgrades, they wanted us to pay for them. Sure. But ultimately, we, we had bought the business, or excuse me, bought the building with the business uh, in there. And then, you know, oil and gas is a cyclical market. And, and I think that's, well, I don't think that's where a lot of their work was going. So you know, they were having a tough time. And, and ultimately, you know, once we got comfortable with the use of the new tenant, I thought, well, you know, this is, this is a much safer market, right? These guys are going to be able to pay um, and pay on time every time. I'm going to keep gnawing on this bone a little bit because 
the reason is, is that you're a real estate guy. So, you know, you, when you look at, I want to know what you did for diligence. So you've got this emerging market called cannabis. Oh, it's, it's like, I mean, back then, as you're saying, you're phoning the bank going, if I do this, are you going to, how are you going to still be able to finance me? And what were you doing for diligence in the background? Everything. Yeah. I mean, I've never done so much diligence. I met with the chief of police and I, you know, I was like, did you actually write these letters? Like, have you looked into these guys? Are they, you know, true? And, you know, we called Health Canada and learned about this entire program. And frankly, when they told me about it, that was the first I'd ever heard of it. And there was a way to, you know, they were growing for patients and, you know, we, we met with the patients. I wanted to talk to the people that they were working with because I wanted to know ultimately that they weren't just going to grow it and sell it in some dispensary or, you know, something along those lines. So ultimately I've never done as much diligence and, and it was still like, I went in with great hesitation you know, no signage on the building. You know, there was a full non-disclosure agreement. Like I was, I was quite concerned about the reputational side of it just being so many years in real estate. That was like ultimately a, a, a pretty big risk at the time. So the, I mean, for me, one of the key takeaways is that you're not chasing the next shiny thing on, cause on the surface, I'm sure it looked very appealing and, and it, it ultimately was but you were being diligent in your process. And the reason I say that is because, you know, in, in knowing you the way I've known you for a few years, to the degree I've known you, you are very much an entrepreneur. You're always looking for another great deal, something to that you can sink your teeth into and, and take to the next level. And I think on the surface, it can appear like it's easy and or that it kind of comes to you without a lot of effort. But the reality of it is, is that it isn't that way. And, you know, you're a high energy individual, you're smart, you think fast, you talk fast, and it can actually appear like that was easy, but there was nothing easy about that. And, and because I know there's lots of real estate investors listening to this, I just don't want to step over that. That's all. No, no, it's, and, and to be honest, I mean, I do more diligence now. Like I, I 100% am an excitable guy and, you know, I, I love to move fast and like slowing down and doing diligence and doing more diligence <laughs> slowing and really down <laughs> slowing down geez that sounds familiar doesn't it <laughs> yeah and, and you know that's been a learned skill for me but ultimately like uh, doing doing a little bit more diligence up front just gives me so much more security and then all of a sudden and just comfort and then i'm like oh hey i'm sleeping better and i feel better about this deal and I don't call them mistakes. I look at them as lessons sure. and I've invested heavily in my education. Uh, haven't we all? Um, but ultimately, you know, as I've learned to slow down and of course, you know, as you start to get more experience, you know, what questions to ask, you know, developed our, our, our mentor group and, you know, learned from amazing people. And, you know, I'm just a sponge, but ultimately I'm, I'm a sponge putting better systems in place to do more diligence to automate the diligence that's done or like just to have a, a like a system for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that goes the same with, you know, for equipment lending or, you know, if we're looking at a, at a new investment, I mean, I get really excited, but I've learned to slow down and go, okay, excitement is needed. And it's step one. And then logical diligence is step two. Great. So thanks for clearing that up. Cause I think it's really important that people understand, you know, in the context uh, always of uh, the everyday millionaire is seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. And it can look on the surface with somebody like yourself, like 
that was easy. It looks pretty easy for you. And I, and, and it's just not, it's none of that. And so, okay, so let's forge ahead. They've sold that. You've now looking at the equipment and the machinery. You've got your engineer that you've talked into staying. So tell me about extraction. Tell me exactly what are you extracting from what? So we, we manufacture supercritical CO2 extraction equipment. So basically it's, and, and like really big stuff, like commercial scale, too big to fit in a basement or a garage. Like, um, you know, we make commercial process equipment for extracting like essential oils out of any botanical. You could decaffeinate coffee, you could extract lavender, hops, you know, it just so happened that hemp and cannabis was where we had the initial need because we were financing these machines and everyone always complained about their reliability. We would spend three or four hundred thousand dollars on one of these machines and then it would be hard to get it serviced. So ultimately it was just, you know, I'm I'm very entrepreneurial and I saw a large problem. And I just went out to find someone to build me a better machine. And then you know, when I met the young engineer who's a friend of mine and that was actually a real estate client, that's how I met him. Uh, I'd sold him a home way back in, uh, in, in the days and we'd become friends. And I knew he worked for an oil and gas uh, company that manufactured mobile extraction equipment. So I thought, here's a smart guy who can probably build these things. And, um, you know, I took him and the owner of the company down to a facility we had an investment in. He started talking with the team and, and they had all these great ideas. And I was thinking, man, this is a, a home run. And then on the flight home, the 62-year-old founder of the company, he, he just said, you know what, Joel, I, I can't, can't do it. I won't get uh, into that market. And I was like, I was extremely upset. Like I was gutted because mm. I thought like, this is the perfect solution. These guys are going to make me a machine. It's going to be a better machine. I'll get a bit of a deal on it. And, you know, now we've got someone we know who can support this equipment. And so, you know, a couple nights of, of just really tossing and turning. And I was like, you know what? I believe in this and, and we got to do it. So it took me some time to talk him into it. But uh, he, he came around and was really excited about it. Your partners, uh, you, have, you have a couple different partners now, right? So did you, you had the engineer that you brought on. <laughs> Yeah. So I, you know, and I mean, I, again, this comes from my experience. I mean, I, I really, you know, as I slowed down and started to own my weaknesses, you know, I, I found that I was always trying to replicate myself in the real estate world. And then some of the people on, on previous podcasts have talked about this, you know, that's really not what I needed. I needed people who were complementary in their skill sets. And, and, you know, one of the first times I, I, um, I did a joint venture on a, on a renovation property. So flip, I had a client, really, really good friend. And she was a contractor and like, just super great design sense, loved like getting the calls from the drywall guys and like loved really managing all of that. I really didn't, but she loved my ability to put deals together, find things. And so finally we joint ventured, And ultimately I was like, why was I not doing this earlier? Like she loves doing everything I hate and I love doing everything she doesn't like. And so, you know, that was a kind of that aha moment where I'm like, okay, you know, I want to hire people who are strong where I'm weak. And then together, you know, it's that old one plus one equals five. And so, you know, when I started talking with James, who's just linear, logical, amazing engineer, super bright and very, you know, 
stoic, you know, just he, he wouldn't jump on a plane and go and close some deals, but I ultimately can't design industrial equipment and, and I don't know pressure codes and, and, you know, I'm a very terrible welder. So, uh, you know, good skill sets there. And then, and then my third partner on that was, he's a dear friend of mine, great MBA, like good operator. And he was working for, you know, a fortune 500 company and managing a whole group of engineers. And I was like, I've never done that before. That's a skill set I need. So the early pitch was James, you make the machines, Pete, you run the company and I'll fly around and sell them. And, you know, we thought if we can get to one machine a month, this would be a great business. And, uh, you know, we've, we've far exceeded that and it's, it's been an incredible ride. And this equipment that you're selling starts that are what? 500,000? About half a million and, yeah. and up from there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the name Vitalis Extraction. Where did you? Where did Vitalis come from? I know. So when you get into the extraction side, you know the, the our machines can operate really cold, like full spectrum oil, which is is needed in a lot of the the medical markets. But Vitalis Vitality, you know, it was just kind of sure. a couple bottles of wine and a long dinner, and what URLs were available, and you know what what we kind of just threw a bunch of stuff out and brainstormed. And then ultimately that was the winner. You know, I, I, I wish I had a better story for that, but that's the truth. So is the equipment that you're, when we had dinner the other night in Vancouver, we were talking about, we were sitting around the table, you know, here we were, we were joking about, you know, where else can you sit around a table and talk about cannabis all night? And because we had other guests with us and it was kind of an interesting night to see different perspectives of what's going on in that world and is most of the equipment that you're building now used in the cannabis industry? Because you talked about botanical extraction and there's other things that would be, is that the prime, is that the primary focus for you in your clients is in, in the uh, world of cannabis or does it, do you have other stuff going on? So we, yeah, we definitely have other stuff going on, but like ultimately just the explosive growth of that market, you know, if you look at the number of lavender or essential oil companies that exist in the world who, you know, maybe there's 20 or 40 globally that would need the size of equipment that we make. And, you know, five of them are buying product, buying a new system every year where, you know, there's a thousand people starting cannabis businesses in California alone at the scale that we would supply. Plus, then you look at the hemp markets, so ultimately, cannabis and, and hemp are kind of where our marketing dollars are focused, only because it's just an emerging market right now, and, and the equipment works exceptionally well in that. So are a lot of the uh, buyers of your equipment, are they medical guys, or is it CBD oil, or, or is it all of it? I mean, most, like, so we don't extract anything, you yeah, know, we don't actually don't touch use it. Yeah. the plants at all, but, yeah. you know, like we... I mean, publicly, we power Afria and like Kronos, you know, a lot of the large, you know, the world's largest cannabis companies, publicly traded entities, you know, big farm collectives. And so that's, that's been, you know, having their support. And again, I, I go back to like what we built our real estate businesses on. It was always just make a good product or, or like deliver a good service, look after the clients and the, and the paychecks look after themselves. So we came in with a with a high service direct selling model and trained engineers who would, you know, overnight parts, like all of these things, which to me were just like that's how it should be. But it just it wasn't in the the manufacturing businesses that way. So let's go back a little bit to something that you talked about, Joel, which was the realization for you is that 
there's things that you can't do. We won't even call it a weakness. It's just that that's not in your skill set. And so you can't do it. And one of the most difficult things for uh, business owners, entrepreneurs, is the realization that in order to scale a business, because that's where you focus, what can I scale? How can I grow the business? That's, you know, you're really working to put yourself out of a job at every step of the way. If I'm doing this, how do I actually take that and not have to do that anymore and move on to what's next for me to do? And, and that's, I mean, that's a good, that's the role of any good CEO, which is to position themselves in a way that they're actually surrounding themselves with people that are actually way smarter than, than them in many areas. Yeah. You've done that quite effectively, but what's interesting about it for you is that, I mean, you're still a young man. I mean, you're, how old are you? 35? Yeah. And I mean, to have that realization early on is really cool. I mean, I never had that realization early on. I was very much a technician for a long time. And so for you to get it, where do you think that kind of evolved from? Did you have some mentors? Did you have some guys that kicked your ass? How did that show up for you? A bit of both. I mean, I, I, um, you know, I definitely met some mentors early on, like one in particular who, who really changed a lot of the course of my life. And, you know, he's a, I was in flipping houses and then he's a huge name in the real estate business. He started century 21 in Canada and, and Peter has got into another group of franchising and Fabutan massage envy, you know, a whole bunch of things. But I, I met Peter very, very early in, in my real estate career and we just became friends and he was an incredible mentor still is. But, you know, he just brought me to, would include me in these dinners and conversations and, and they were so far above my head, but I learned so much. And I, I just, I always loved that sort of table, that, that group of people, you know, if I'm the, if I'm the stupidest guy at the table, it means I'm at the right table and I can learn a lot. And I've always just tried to replicate that as, as we go along. That phrase I've used myself so many times, be the dumbest guy at the table. If you're not the dumbest guy at the table, you're at the wrong table. The problem with that can be for some people is very intimidating. You, you know, you might not feel like you belong and, and ultimately you still come to the table with the gifts that you come with the skill sets that you have, but being in a, in a room with, or in a, at a table with a number of people who are really smart forces you to up the game. It's the old, it's the old case. If you want to be a great golfer, Go golf with a bunch of scratch golfers, right? You can, you have no choice but to play better. But also, you got you got no choice. I mean, if you want them to keep invited, or if you want to be invited back again, you've got to do the work between those dinners, right? I mean, they would they would talk about these books that they've read, and then I went and read them, and then I felt like, okay, now I have something to talk about the next time we meet, right? You know, if if they told me. Hey, you know, you should try implementing this. I mean, I would do it. I would try it. I would document the findings and then I would kind of report back. And it, and it really made these incredible connections, but it gave me more confidence in that because you're absolutely right. I mean, it was terrifying to be sitting at some of those tables. You know, I've always been so fascinating, fascinated by entrepreneurs who have had multiple successes and in different industries and like Richard Branson, I, I read everything, but I mean, you look at someone like Richard, I always thought he was such, you know, I, I still do. I believe he's an incredible leader because, you know, he owns the airline or he owns this business or that business, but he doesn't know everything about flying those planes. And, and he's got the CEO of that company who's been with him 30 years, who knows everything about aviation. And he talks about like, oh, I'm, 
it's such an honor to work with Richard. And Peter had people in his organization that always said the same thing as well. And I was like, I really want to aspire to be that kind of leader. You know, because early in my management days, I, I certainly uh, wasn't. I was, I was, I would get people excited. I would bring people in, but ultimately, that follow through, that care and attention, like, wasn't always uh, as deep as it needed to be. You're in the in the real estate world. You're a realtor. You, I think you own you owned a brokerage, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and the, but you were also an investor. Were you investor in terms of? Single family, multi land. What? Tell me a little bit about your real estate background, Joel. Literally, yeah. So I I, I stumbled into it. Um, you know, going to school for finance and moved out very early. And you know, my my parents um, loved them. And you know, growing up, I grew up on a farm in Winnipeg. Mom and dad, you know, did well, but they were very much like, "Oh, you want a car when you're 16?" I'm like, "Yeah, that'd be great." They're like, "Good, get a job." Right. And it was really challenging. And I commend them now for it because they were so consistent. Like, we, I, you know, I never worried about a roof over my head or, you know, my clothes were hand-me-downs from my brother. And I would always be like, hey, you know, why can't I have new shoes? And they're like, because those are great shoes. And I'm like, yeah, but we can afford it. And, and they were always like, hey, you want shoes? Go get a job. Go get a job. And so fresh out of, out of high school, a friend and I bought a you know a ninety five thousand dollar condo in a really bad area in Kelowna, but it was ours. And um, you know we we did a little reno on it, and you know Dad was in the construction world in in Winnipeg, and and so you know he put no money in, but he was always there to help. And you know they made me sort of go through things and learn, but they were always there to support. But they just knew like you know that you can't go to the bank of mom and dad. I really didn't appreciate it at the time. But it gave me like a hunger and a drive to like prove them wrong and and show them. And so we finished this reno on the little condo and and six months in, he had met a girl, the the guy I bought it with. And, um, you know, he he said, hey, Joel, um, I'm going to move in with with my girlfriend and like you should buy me out and I I need the cash. We're going to buy something else together. And so, you know, I'm six months into the first year of college and all of my cash is sitting in the renovation and the down payment on that on that apartment. So we had to list it and I was not very happy about that. Ultimately, you know, we bought it for 90, 95, 98,000. I can't remember exactly, but I think we only spent four or $5,000, like just laminate floors, paint, baseboards, nothing, nothing crazy. And the market was doing well or starting to pick up in Kelowna. So six months later, we sold it for 145. And, you know, I was able to then go and buy another two bedroom condo myself this time. And I thought, uh, you know, I'm going to get a roommate and then I'll be in control of this situation. And, but ultimately, as soon as we were done that reno, I, I, it hit me like, I wonder if I could sell this one. And then, uh, you know, I shifted away from the goal of being a stockbroker or working in the financial market somewhere and was just totally addicted with real estate. And, you know, I loved this side of like doing a deal and then getting to do the demo. And like, I started doing everything my, myself. And then I learned very quickly that I'm terrible at drywall. I'm a very slow painter in all of these different things. So then we started bringing in teams and, and putting that together. What did you go to university for? What was your finance finance major finance, minor marketing. So how did that come into play? Because, you know, when you're into real estate at a young age, there's some pretty big numbers going on. I mean, I like, I get that you like the deals. How are you overcoming the math and, and dealing with the, the size of the deals that you were, did that ever bother you? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, it was definitely a hurdle, but you know, I, I, again, like 
most people, their home is their largest financial asset. And, you know, I don't believe there's that we really sell homes, right? I mean, you, you educate people through a market and you help them negotiate, but ultimately, you know, if you're buying your own home, like it's up to Joe and Mary to, to fall in love with the home, you know, nobody's going to come to you and, and, looking for a five bedroom home and you're just such a good salesman, you put them into the two bedroom condo you had listed, you know, it's not quite the way it works. So we worked a lot with investors, myself personally. Um, you know, I put a buyer's agent on at a very early stage in my career, just because I, he was, he was much better at working with those people who wanted to see 30 homes and really fall in love with a primary residence. I was far more focused on what's the ROI if you're just moving into this for five years, you know, what, what can we do to, to increase the value and really, you know, you fall in love with the house. I'll deal with the number side. That's what we, we used to always talk about. Did you learn early on that numbers were appealing to you? So, I mean, you go, you go to university for finance. Why did you, why did you go there? Uh, you know what? My, my father was in the industry. My grandfather was in the industry and, sure. and that's kind of where it started. But I actually really, you know, I like the business world. And it's not all about money, but that was just, that's the scorecard. You know, is this a good property? Is it better than that property? And and how would I know? Really, it boiled down to the numbers. And I, you know, build some spreadsheets, look at it. And then you could confidently be like, okay, I've done the research. That's a better option for me to buy. So were you always, did you ever have a job? Did you work in the car industry for a little while or something, didn't you? I was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when I was, uh, you know... I, I left school originally and, uh, you know, just got into real estate full time. And then the bank wanted me to have a job. And I said, I have a job in flipping houses. And uh, that wasn't good enough for them. And another business mentor of mine uh, was in the auto business. And I, I had just met him. He was a good friend. He owned the largest auto group in Canada at the time. And they were opening uh, a BMW store. And so I thought, well, I could sell BMWs. So <laughs> I went in for an interview and you know the sales manager was quite perplexed that I thought I would just start at BMW. First time ever selling cars. And I said, well, if I don't believe in it, I can't sell it. You know, He had a very odd look on his face and he said, well, tell me this. I was 20 at the time. If a 60-year-old man asks you, should I buy or lease my $150,000 7 Series, what, what kind of life experience do you have to tell him? And I thought, oh, we're in the numbers side now. Great, step into my office. <laughs> and, you know, we got into a conversation around, well, you know, I, I need to know how much, you know, is BMW financing this car? What's the program? And he said, well, right now the 7 Series, you can lease it for 2.9%. And I said, it's easy then. Even if you have the money to buy it, you lease it. Because if you're not making 2.9% on your money somewhere else, then we have to have a different conversation more important than this car. So why, yeah. <laughs> so is that, I mean, that's just math, right? Well, exactly. And so, you know, he, he thought, well, that's, that's an interesting angle. And then we got into, you know, some life story of, of real estate and kind of my background and things. And he took a chance on me and, and I'm very glad he did because I, I had a lot of fun in the auto industry. It gave me the flexibility to kind of come and go as I, as I pleased. But ultimately, you know, I think I was number two in Canada and, and it was purely because I wasn't a high pressure salesperson. Right. I mean, I didn't really, people would come in and they'd be super stressed out. And I'd be like, you guys don't have to buy a car today, do you? Like, let's just drive some things and have fun. And it was a great, great business. Um, and ultimately, I, I probably would have stayed in it 
And one of the realtors I was working with at the time on some projects, you know, just kind of talked me into, Hey, you should get into real estate. I mean, you know, I was selling cars to all the doctors, lawyers, you know, they were friends of mine. We were involved in charity ventures together and, and it was a ton of fun. And, and he really talked me into it. So we, I, I owned a brokerage. Uh, I owned half a brokerage before I had a real estate license, um, which I wouldn't recommend. That one was probably, that was backwards for sure. But it was a great experience. And, and that was kind of, you know, that was the school of hard knocks of, of true startup entrepreneurship. And so I, I left, left the car business and got into real estate full time. So do you consider yourself, I mean, you're a great numbers guy, you're, you have vision. Do you consider yourself a good sales guy as well? Because you, you are a good sales guy, but do you, do you hold yourself that way? I mean, I like the psychology of selling for sure. I like putting systems together and I really, you know, marketing programs that understand the buyers, I think are, are essential. So I really geek out on that stuff. I read a lot on the subject and I, I'm forever a student of what makes people buy. But you're also a student of an integrity-based sales. So you're not out just selling anything. You have to believe at some level that what you've got going on is like epic in terms of what it delivers. And and ultimately, right? Yeah. If you're not looking after the people, like if I'm, I could never sell anything that I don't believe in because it just goes against that fundamental, you know, belief that I have of like, you have to look after the customer, the person, the partner. And then the money looks after itself. And and if you're just selling something to make money, I, I think that's a it's a dangerous game, right? If you're building great product, if you're marketing something that you believe in, if you're selling something that you're passionate about, all of those things are winning combos, in my opinion. I see it often in business, and and I've experienced it, by the way, that you know when you get into survival mode, or when you're when it, as soon as it shifts into being about the money. It, everything gets turned off. It just isn't sustainable to be about the money. You actually have to always go back. And that in the world of real estate, it's like the, the problem that I see with real estate is so many deals look appealing on the surface. But if you don't do your diligence, the it's only about the money. And it, it's so important to understand the dynamics in real estate because the numbers get big and they look really appealing. And then all of a sudden you're just chasing the money and you're not actually going down the layers that you need to really look at the product and say, is this what I want at number one, sell joint venture on or, or buy. Yeah. And, and I see that often when money's the only focus, things get really, um, can get really off the rails. Well, and, and, and ultimately, you know, I guess I, I, I've seen it in sort of two ways, right? I mean, when, when we had realtors working with us and, you know, we were training agents, you know, you would see these huge peaks and valleys. I think anyone who's been selling real estate, if you haven't had uh, valleys in your income, you probably haven't had peaks in your income, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, you would see guys like close two deals in a month and, and get some paychecks and then they would stop doing their prospecting work. And, you know, it's like a well, right? You got to prime that pump and you got to keep doing this stuff that you were doing in order to get those leads in. And you need leads to get buyers. You need listings and buyers to get sales. And like people would sort of not understand the whole cycle or they would stop and then it would take a couple months to get going again. And so the psychology of that always, always fascinated me. And I tried to build systems around it to sort of standardize that and track it. Cause that was, again, it just boiled down to numbers, but 
when it came to real estate deals, you know, it was one thing Peter said early on that, that really stuck with me. You know, when we were talking about doing these little deals and, you know, cause it was just, it was all the money we had. And he was like, Joel, real estate deals, a real estate deal, right? If you have more doors, there's just more zeros, but the fundamentals remain the same. And oftentimes the bigger deals can actually be easier to get a joint venture partner on or to get a financing guy to look at. Because if you have more doors, you, you've, you've got, you're, you're offsetting the risk, right? And that's interesting, especially given the lending environment today, you know, in 2019 and the way the rules have changed for investors, uh, bigger deals are actually that don't depend on income are actually, or at least on personal income and depend on the performance of the property. You almost have to go that direction in most cases now, given the lending environment right now to get, to actually to sure. scale anything, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about your leadership and the realizations that you've had around leadership, because you had your brokerage, you're running, trying to run a team or running a team, not trying to, you're actually running the team. What have you learned about yourself around leadership and, and what has been the focus for you? So there's a, even in this conversation right now, Joel, what I, you know, what I see happening with you is that success on the surface looks easy, but you're, you know, it's like the duck or the, the, you know, the goose on the pond, right? You know, it's all cool and collective <laughs> on the surface and underneath his feet are churning like, you know, like crazy. Uh, so you, you've had a, a high degree of success and, and will continue to, I'm sure, but you're, you're pedaling hard underneath that surface. So oh. you're busting and, your ass. And you know what? I mean, the sleepless nights and the, you know, the, the one thing I have learned is like in the management style, like I used to try and replicate myself as, as we were talking about, but then I also expected people to work as hard as I do, but ultimately it's, it's, you know, these are my companies, right. And, and, not everyone is wired that way. Like I am hyper entrepreneurial and I'm crazy focused on, on some of these projects. Like when I get passionate and we're getting something started, like I'll put in crazy long hours, which, you know, is not sustainable long-term forever, but you know, I'm a sprinter. I love a good sprint work like crazy and then take your foot off the gas and, and relax a little bit. And that, that took some time to learn. I think I burned some people out in the, in the early days, trying to get them to work like me, um, you know, trying to hire people and turn them into me. And, and that's just a, a bad move really, you know? So again, learning how to better put people around you, but then also I've, I've done tons of reading around how to be more patient and, and, you know, like creating time, no matter how busy my schedule gets, creating time to check in with those people who work for you, you know, making sure there's good communication and no assumptions with your joint venture partners, right? I mean, that, that communication is so important because those little things can, can turn into big problems later. Uh, so th- this is a, a, an interesting conversation uh, around joint venture partners and communication. So when things, go, when things are going good, it's easy to have that communication. When things are not going good, it's a, a much more difficult uh, task to take yeah. on. So, I mean, I'm sure not every deal has gone right with you with a joint venture partner. No, perhaps, perhaps it has. Definitely not. But I mean, I, every time, right. I mean, I, you know, a mistake made once is a lesson. A mistake made twice is a mistake. And so, you know, all of those lessons I've learned from, from things that just uncomfortable situations or, you know, really shitty conversations. You're like, Ooh, that didn't feel good. I don't want that to happen again. So, you know, you go back and figure out, okay, what caused that? How can we stop it? 
or, or deal with it or mitigate it. Right. So now before we get into a, a new business partner or a new joint venture, you know, I'll have the conversation with them and, and you have those hard conversations. Like, Hey, if we get divorced, who's taking the house, who's taking the summer cottage? Like, you know, how do we split these assets up? How much conversation should we have? And you set those expectations in the beginning, write them down, and then have like a, an, an ability to where like, hey, I know we said we'd, we'd have a call once a month and that's what we'll do. And if that's not enough or you need a little bit more or a little bit less, like we'll just revisit that together and both agree on it. But once you have everyone on the same page and you set those expectations and then deliver on them, I just find the communication, the relationship, like it's, it's a much more pleasurable experience. Being clear up front, plan the divorce up front, because ultimately when you're in a joint venture with somebody, you are going to get divorced. I mean, at some point you're going to split the sheets and uh, it doesn't have to be divorce as in contentious. It's just you're actually planning for it. That was the whole idea of getting into a joint venture was to make some money and then move on. And it may be into another deal, but that's why you bought the property. Exactly. And then ultimately, you know, we've had some joint venture partners who, you know, when, when you have someone who has put money in and then something changes in their life and they need it out midway through, you know, that's, that's a problem. You know, if the house hasn't sold yet and they want some cash out, that's a problem. And ultimately, you know, we would have conversations that happened to us once. And now, you know, in our agreements, there's, there's a clause for that. And if someone needs to do it, it is at a discount to them because it's, it's a very hard thing to deal with, but at least now it gives anyone who might need to use that actually knows what it's going to look like. It just decreases the stress all the way through instead of these like unknowns. And how am I going to talk about that? And Oh gosh, is this going to be a fight? You know, just iron it all out, lay it all out, all cards on the table in the beginning. You know, that's such a good lesson for everybody to learn. And, and like you, I've, I've learned it the hard way and probably a very expensive way, but I don't have any problem with those conversations now. They're not uncomfortable for me anymore. I, I, I'm assuming that sometimes they're uncomfortable for the other, the person on the other end of the table or on the other side of the table, but that's never the intention. It's just clarity. Cause to your point, speaking of divorce, you know, you get into a joint venture partner and that's what happens. There's a death in the family. There's a divorce. There's something change in life and they go, I got to get out. Well, that inevitability has to be thought about and, and totally. not stepped over. And I, I think that as much as we say that as, you know, rain as the educator or me as a coach or you as a coach and a, and a leader, we say it time and time again, but people still don't get how important it is until they go through it. Well, and, and ultimately, you know, I was told these things in the beginning too. And I was the prime example where like, when I got into that situation, I'm looking back going, Every one of my mentors told me, you told me, you know, like uh, every one of my mentors told me to do this. And I thought I was smarter. I thought, I, oh, well, no, no, we got a great relationship. That's not going to happen to us. And it was a divorce. And, you know, like now, if that happens, there's preset, you know, there's a program for it. And now it's also easier to get a new joint venture partner in or a new financier or whatever it might be, because there's a discount in it. That if that person needs their cash out, they, you know, there's no awkward conversations around it and it makes it so much easier. And it, and it just, you know, I just got comfortable having that conversation up front, although it might seem that, oh, you know, we're just getting like, we're just in the dating phase. I don't want to upset the apple cart. It 
oh my gosh, you need to do it. Yeah, you said it you, you, right there. Because if somebody's got a hundred grand or a million in in front of you, you don't want to upset the apple cart. But it's actually the time to upset it. If it's going to be upset, do it before you go any deeper into it. Because man, it gets ugly after that if something goes wrong. Well, and some of the early deals were like, you know, I was very young and I was putting in the minority portion of the cash. And you'd have that conversation with someone who's got millions of dollars and they appreciated it. They're like, oh, like you're, you're coming at this like a business. You've yeah. thought about this. You've got a plan in place and it made them more comfortable as well. Sure, they might want to adjust some of the terms, but just the fact that, you know, it wasn't just excitement and, and like, come on, this is going to be amazing. Look at how much money we're going to make if everything goes perfect. Someone who has millions of dollars to invest in one of your projects is going to want to know that you've thought about the downside risks. And what about if it doesn't go perfect? And, you know, having those conversations up front, being able to go through the real scenarios, like if the market continues to rise like this, this is our profit level. If it flattens out or worse yet, if it decreases, this is what the, the numbers are going to look like. And, you know, when it, it ultimately it gave us way more power and got us better partners because they saw us as like real professionals who have thought things through. Such a good point, Joel. And, and so for the real estate investors that are listening to this, it's such an important lesson. And, and, what, what the, and the, one of the reasons I'm spending so much time on it, I realize, is that I just had a call yesterday with a, a young lady, young as in 33, which is young to me these days. But ultimately, she made a $100,000 mistake, which was in a joint venture. And there's a very good chance, probably probably for sure chance that she'll lose her $100,000 that her and her husband worked very hard for. And it's painful to listen to the story, not be able to support other than just have, you know, have a, a, you know, some compassion and some empathy. And, and, you know, she has to own her mistake, which she did, by the way, she wasn't, she's totally over the blame game. She realized that it was ultimately her who made the decisions that, or her and her husband that made the decisions and they own it, but it was a really tough conversation to have. And the reality of it was that at near the end of our conversation, she goes, and, you know, I've listened to you so many times say, don't do this without paperwork. Don't get into a joint venture deal without doing the paperwork. Doesn't matter who it is. You know, if it's your mom, write it down, get it handled because things happen. So it was really tough to listen to it. And that's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. But back to you, Joel, back to you, pal. Oh, I, I mean, Hey, I, I, I feel for her and I don't oh. even know her cause I had a hundred thousand dollar mistake. Yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, one of the first deals I ever did. I invested in a car dealership, uh, not a business I under, you know, I understood the business side of, I'd been in it. I'd met it. I, he's, he was a good friend, still is a good friend. Actually, we went through a trying time, but ultimately he was scaling up the dealership. I loved cars. I thought, Hey, you know, I've made some money. This is going to be great. And, uh, you know, I, I put a sizable chunk of money in for me at the time. And, you know, he scaled up too fast, built it, went from 4,000 square feet to 20,000. And, and ultimately the business went under. And, you know, when RBC and like the big banks are, are taking the property and you're sitting there waving your little flag going, Hey, well, what about my money? Um, I, I didn't get a dollar of it back. Right. You know, same thing, like looking back at it now, like I made those decisions, you know, I knew better. 
people that I, you know, I, I, I learned all of those things, but I still did it. And, you know, ultimately it's made me a lot. That's kind of where the patients started to grow there. And the idea of, Hey, if you're ever getting into something that you're not super familiar with, slow down and do more diligence, not less. Don't get caught in the hype. So yeah, just speaking of, you know, expensive mistakes, which just through sheer age and years on this earth, I know I've made far more than you. And that's not bragging. That's just warning you, <laughs> you know, don't do it. Anyways, what's so far, what would you say is your, your, you know, what was the biggest mistake you've made? And I'm going to twist the question. What's the biggest mistake you made that you think turned out to be a blessing in disguise? Got any of those? To be honest, I, I would say that one. I mean, that, that investment in the car dealership, you know, I did that because, you know, it was fun. It was exciting. Um, but ultimately it was a very costly mistake. You know, it, it, that was a sizable chunk of my net worth at the time. And that really hurt. And I still think about it now and it still doesn't feel good, but it ultimately, it really forced me to slow down. And, you know, that, that would certainly be one of them. Another, you know, in, in the real estate brokerage, um, when we started that and, and we were scaling it up, it was a, it, that's a challenging business because it's so commoditized now. And, and, you know, you, and, and ultimately when I ended up selling that, I was thinking, okay, you know, do I want to buy into another business? And, you know, it, it really dawned on me that I didn't really enjoy doing it, you know? And I was just like, well, you know, we built this up. I've put four years in, I'm very proud of, of what we built, but I didn't love it. And so ultimately, you know, it, it wasn't this sort of didn't tap into my, my great challenges and, uh, and, and really give me that like kick jump out of bed in the morning and like go to work super excited. So part of it for me now is, is like the numbers need to make sense. Like the fundamentals of the deal need to be there, but ultimately it's still got to be, um, something that excites me and real estate excites me, you know, new markets and great opportunity excites me. So is it, but it's not actually the real estate that excites you, but it's the deal and the opportunity and the challenge to play the game in real estate. Would, would that be a, a different way of saying it or is the, or is what, cause I always look at it and saying, well, what is it about real estate? I feel like I'm just stealing all of Peter's golden nuggets here and, and giving them back, but I'm Perfect. just, I'm, I'm sharing them, which is great. Yes. I just, I gotta be honest that they're not all mine, but you know, one of the things that we had talked about is like, I love really high growth markets, you know, um, you know, when, when we started investing in the, in the cannabis market, you know, this equipment side of things was really fun and it was really fast growth, but ultimately where I wanted my money is not in, I didn't need to get 400% returns or even a hundred percent returns. Like boring is sexy when you're putting your money into a deal, right? I wanted my money over here safe. And, and that's what I love so much about real estate you know, especially commercial real estate. So with Vitalis, you're traveling the world. That sounds like fun. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Is, is it fun? I mean, you're no. London, you're, where, are, I don't know. Are you back home or are you still, you were in, what were you, Sweden or Switzerland? I asked you that earlier and then I don't remember the answer. So I was at the, I, I was speaking in Davos, Switzerland at, a, at an economic forum that was there. And I'm uh, speaking to you now from London. So like when we talk about what really excites me and like, if I'm learning, if I'm challenged, you know, I love all of those things. So I focus a lot in the manufacturing company now on new markets, how we're going to tackle them. You know, I've got to find us a facility in Europe. So I'm looking at 
you know, commercial real estate out here, trying to figure out exactly how big the staff's going to be. Like basically they parachute me into markets to figure things out. And then Pete, our COO is, is, you know, he and I build the plan and then he executes on it and he's amazingly good at that. But, you know, for me, I, I, I also know that when, when things are in like super steep incline markets, I love that, you know, when it becomes like, okay, Hey, we're going to manage this. And, uh, we're, we're shooting for 8% growth this year. Like that's when I'm going to hire a CEO and, and, you know, make myself obsolete. So what is it about all that you're doing right now? Cause you said it, you know, you, what lights you up? So I think it's such an important conversation to have. I mean, you know, Stephanie and I, and, and we've had lots of philosoph- philosophical conversations that really, you got to love your life. It doesn't matter what you do because we're, we're, you and I are similar in that we're entrepreneurial. And so our life has got to be cool because otherwise we're, it all is going to land as just working. But like you, you don't consider what you're doing work. You're just living your life and having a great life. And in this case, you're totally. at this point traveling the world and doing all the things that you're doing, hanging out in London. I mean, that's all pretty sexy on the surface, buddy. I mean, it looks pretty cool. Yeah. You seem to be enjoying yeah. it. You always got a smile on your face. I, well, I, and you know what, again, that that's just, you know, I, I, I like attacking the day with a smile on my face. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the work travel side of things, like I think I did 200 and 40 flights last year or something like that's really hard on the body. That's really tiring. It is. But for me, like I love learning about these new cultures, seeing new opportunities, like just exploring markets. I still look at real estate at every single city I'm in, you know, what's the rental market. I'm always running cap rates on stuff. But you know, for me, when, if we go all the way back, like when it was just Kelowna, like we were doing really, really well, but I, I started to kind of get a little bored. And, you know, I went down with some doctors into Scottsdale and really, I just went to get out of the gray Kelowna winter, play some golf and drink some beer. But ultimately we, we ended up looking at 75 homes and and you're going, well, that was really when they were depressed, like eight, nine, 2008, 2009. Yeah. And, you know, everyone had foreclosed on their homes and then the rental market was really strong and you're going, Oh man, this is like, a completely new adventure. And plus the fundamentals make sense. So again, excitement matched with good fundamentals, you know, so then we started buying some property down there and put a little group together. And, you know, that was really exciting. So for me, I I love to travel. I love to explore, but I also love to learn. Like that's what really fires me up. So how do you hold your, your risk tolerance? So when you're looking at a deal, you're doing the math, how do you feel your risk tolerances? Do you think you have a high risk tolerance or how would you measure it if you could? Well, so I, I guess it's all about, you know, at my age now, there, you know, if it's time risk, like if I've got to put some sweat equity in and some cash, I would take a lot larger risk than, you know, if, if someone was asking me to take 50% of my net worth and invest it in some stock, I, I would never do that. I mean, for my investments, if it's like, security wise, boring is sexy. That's everything I want as boring and safe and downside risk managed as possible. And then I keep a, a portion of risk capital. When you look at your goals, are you a goal setter? Because when is enough enough or, or, you know, you said earlier on that money's just a scorecard. So do you have a, a yeah. So, okay. So do you have 
ultimate goals. I mean, you've made a lot of money and you've built a really cool business. And why aren't you, I don't know, why aren't you on vacation in the tropics or fishing? I'm, I'm super dangerous when I'm not working. I get bored and spend a lot of money and ultimately, you know, my mind is going and I, I want to do that. I mean, like Vitalis has been, our, our real estate company was super rewarding, but like the growth that we've seen, you know, we've got a hundred staff on, on Vitalis. We're the largest in the world for this type of equipment. And like the culture that we have is, is and, the, and the opportunity that's here and just like really building something amazing, like really legacy has, has been a big driving force of this. And ultimately, you know, that scorecard is reading very, very well as, you know, the, the money side is, is looking after itself because that's kind of, you know, that scorecard tells you, are you doing something the market wants? Right. And how is the market reacting to it? You know, when, when we used to do a home and it would sell like first weekend open house, like multiple offers, you'd be like, okay, we priced this right. We chose it right. We put the right finishes in, like we did a good job. And ultimately the money you made was the scorecard, and, you know, and, and on a couple of our rentals, like things stagnated on the market. It was too big of a house. You know, the feedback you got was live in real time. And you were like, oh, shoot, you know, we, we learned on that one. So f- for me it, now, it's, it's just seeing those opportunities, putting teams together and, and just having fun while we're doing it. And then, you know, making sure that the scorecard reads the right uh, numbers. How much time do you spend with reflection and defining who you are? How you, you're, you're pretty intentional. So we talk about culture. We talk about, you know, a working culture that you're creating with your teams perhaps environment, how conscious are you of defining that for your teams? What role do you play in that? Defining that. I mean, ultimately I, I, I spent a ton of time defining that and, and checking in on like my values really like, you know, ultimately if someone came to us with a deal and it was like, Hey, you could put some money in this and we could make a huge return. But if it was outside of my values, the returns don't matter. Right you know, if, again, it's gotta be something I believe in. It's gotta be something I can get passionate about. And then the numbers have to make sense, but you know, in that order, and ultimately that's always guided by, you know, those guiding principles or, or values as Peter would put it. How much of a mindset guy are you compared to your engineer partners? You know, I talk to lots of engineers. I can always pick an engineer accountant, not that, that that's wrong. And I sometimes pick on them. I've had people, actually, I've had listeners say, why are you always picking on engineers? I'm not picking on engineers, but there's definitely a way of thinking that is much needed, much appreciated, but is certainly Huge. different than somebody who is creative, let's say, like yourself. So, I, I mean, mindset is, I think it's like paramount because- Ultimately, like when you look at the psychology of, of selling or the psychology of buying, really, you know, if, if you're going to meet a new joint venture partner or sell a property or, you know, and you've had a really bad morning or a really bad day, the buyer of that or the investor doesn't really care, but they're absolutely going to sense if, if you're in a foul mood, if you're grumpy or, you know, and, that, and that's mindset you know, learn from it. So it doesn't happen again, but don't let it ruin, you know, like don't let that echo into other areas of your life. And I think that's, that's totally mindset. So you're pretty intentional of defining who you are. Like you're aware of it. You make changes. The reason I say this is I 
and, and the reason I use the engineer analogy on this is because as much as we talk about man, mindset, when I talk to, you know, an engineer way of thinking, and, and I'm being really, really clear, I'm not making engineers wrong. I'm looking at that way of thinking. They ultimately want to look in black and white and say, okay, I get the idea of mindset, but it's got to make sense. It's got to be, you know, can I define it? Can I, so I guess the question is for you is back to your partner who's got an engineering background. Do you guys bump into that or, or you see past it or do they, you see past each other in your way of thinking and just leverage that? I mean, I, I think ultimately that our different ways of looking at things, you know, is, is part of the power, but I mean, they could not be more different, right? I mean, I am ultimately like, no one can do anything to me. Right. And, and like, I don't want to sit back and wait for someone else to change or, you know, someone else is, I've got to convince this person to think the way I do. Right. Ultimately you read a situation and then I can control my action to it. Right. I can choose to move forward and accept the consequences of it, or I can choose to move out of that deal and, and also accept the consequences of that, you know, and, or, set better boundaries or, you know, all of that is, is kind of mindset based, but, but ultimately like I can only control me and I can only control how I react to the things that happen in in my life. But that's just great wisdom, by the way. And, and not everybody gets that. And, And that's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time on it to see, you know, how you've evolved and changed in that way and what you've learned along the way, which is, I think is, you know, if we all stand around uh, waiting for that other person to finally change, we're left to be very disappointed. Yeah, like ultimately, I just made the decision to to not put my happiness in anyone else's hands, right? I mean, if if you're sitting back and waiting for someone to change their mind so that they would see things the way you do, or like ultimately, when you when you're putting that out there, like, oh. Well, they have to fix it. Well, it's his problem. Well, he's wrong. You know, ultimately, that's that. That's just kind of putting your happiness or your success in someone else's hands. And I just, I never was comfortable with that. That is the energy leak that some people bring into the space too. And that's what I think is one of the most difficult things is, is to be really aware of where your energy is being drawn and so if you're misaligned, doesn't necessarily mean that other person is wrong, but it's just a bad alignment. It doesn't work. So then you find yourself trying to make them wrong and or change them, which is just a huge draw of energy. So surrounding yourself yeah, with like-minded I, people is so important. Well, and, you know, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier of just, you know, having those awkward conversations in the beginning, you know, and, and I say awkward because that's what a lot of people feel like they are, but I actually call like they're amazing conversations because it really highlights the alignment. It really gives you a platform to go back and check in on, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm feeling a, a little bit of tension around this. Can we talk about it? And it kind of gives you those guiding principles to not ever have those you know, sleepless nights because you're worried about what are they thinking? Or oh, is he going to, you know, I need that money out. What's it going to look like? Does he want his money back? How am I going to get it? Whatever that would be, you know, that ultimately can take up a ton of your bandwidth, a ton of your energy. And like, we only have so much every day to, to use. And I don't want to, I don't want to waste it on stuff like that. So was there a particular fork in the road that you see as memorable that was really uh, a kind of change the trajectory of Joel? I mean, certainly I could look in listening to your story, we could say, 
renting to the the cannabis, the plant food guys, what maybe that was a fork in the road for you. Or but was there was there a defining fork in the road for you that took you off on a path that you didn't ever see yourself going on? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, like I still laugh every day that, you know, we we talk about cannabis every day. Like that's that's just surreal. Uh, I never saw myself going down that path. So certainly, I mean, that tenant was, you know, instrumental in, in really getting me into the, the industry. And I'm very grateful for it. Never anything I, I thought I would be doing, but ultimately it's been one of the most exciting challenges of, of my life. Certainly, you know, the fork in the road of, of meeting Peter and, and having that mentor in my life, really amazing as well. But also like the the confidence that came from really taking some of these calculated chances and, you know, seeing these things pay off and you're going, okay, you know, hey, now, now let's check in and make sure that the three of us are aligned for the next phase of this and, and really not getting carried away like with success, but ultimately like managing it. And so now every quarter we'll sit down and we'll go, okay, like, Let's review the what's good, what's bad, where are we going? Are we all in alignment? And you know, what parameters do we have to put around it? So, you know, those those learning those skills has probably been the 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 biggest fork in the road, if you will. So with your partners on Vitalis or any of your stuff, so you guys are doing very, very well. You know, you're generating, you know, millions of dollars of revenue and you're profitable. You got all the great things going on. What's the conversations with your partners around money? Do you guys have are are you have tough decisions around money, or does everybody feel are are your values pretty aligned, and have you had to work on it? Because I've seen so often over the years, and I've had many partners over the years, where it's when the money's on the table and it comes time to decide where it's going to go, and that doesn't mean that it has to be. You know, it, it's more like. Are we going to take this off the table, put it in our jeans? Are we investing it back in the business? Yeah. Or where's the, where are we? Where does that cash flow to? Are you guys pretty clear on that in general? Yeah, and I think really like we have three very different ways of thinking, and and we've also developed like a very open communication channel. So ultimately, you know, if someone is thinking about it, there there's no we try and keep the emotion out of those conversations. If someone's like, hey, I want to give myself a raise. You know, it's like, okay, tell us about that. Like, how come? Like, you know, like I want to truly understand before I, you know, cast any type of decision around it. Um, so, you know, we we definitely don't always agree, but you know, discussing, you know, we we occupy a number of leased spaces in Kelowna right now, and that's been nagging at me for a long time because I want to collect rent, not pay rent. Right. And, you know, I was getting a lot of pushback on that. Like, hey, we're putting the money back into the business and it's seeing way larger returns. You know, we also started an equipment financing company and we put some cash into that and, and we were getting incredible returns. And, you know, so ultimately they talked me out of it and it, and it was the right choice. And now, you know, we're building a purpose-built facility that we'll own and, uh, you know, it's 40,000 square feet and that'll be our Kelowna hub. And then we're going to buy another one in, in Europe somewhere. And those will both be assets, you know, in a, in a hold co separate from the manufacturing company. But, you know, I mean, ultimately they saw what I was saying and then they just tempered me back like, Hey, let's do this, but let's, let's grow a little bit more before we do it. And so, you know, 
ultimately those conversations, I think we were all better for having them. You know, I, I also very much respect their opinions and really listen. And although I don't always initially agree with it, I, I force myself to okay, think about it, feel it, let it sit with me, and then, you know, then talk about it. You would have every reason to have a pretty big ego, but you don't really have a big ego. It doesn't show up in a negative way. I mean, we all have ego, but you don't live into a big ego. You don't show up that way. Is that conscious? Do you do you have the nagging, you know, maybe in the past where you've done it and it bit oh, you in the ass or? I mean, in, in very young, I mean, I kind of got that out of my system at a really young age. You know, when I was invested in that car dealership, you know, it had driving Lamborghinis and all this craziness. And it just, it, it had a really kind of odd attention that I didn't really like. But ultimately, like, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Someone always has more. Always. You know, you can have, you know, a good friend of mine is a, is a pilot and he flies private jets. And, you know, so I've had, I've been very lucky to, to spend a lot of time in private aviation. And he said at best, he goes, you know, you could be in the nicest plane ever. Someone's always got a nicer plane when you land at one of these airports. And so ultimately it's just, I, I you know, I want to meet those people. I want to learn from them. I want to have a conversation with them. I don't want to compete with them. Mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting you bring that up because I was I often tell a King of Spain story where I went sailing with a friend of mine on his boat and we went and looked at the and it was it was like it was a beautiful five million dollar sailboat and he pulls up and he's comparing himself to the King of Spain and this is a guy whose business is you know doing a million bucks a day and you know and, and I had to laugh in that moment because it was really uh it was a moment for me which was wow you know I compare myself to you and. And I feel like I've accomplished nothing. And you compare yourself to the King of Spain. <laughs> and so it's just, there's always something more. And, and so, but I also see where ego really drives some people. And it's, it's hard to be around. Like, I want people to own their power. And I want them to be the best and the most they can be. But it's tough to be around big egos that, uh, you know, get in the way that kind of on the verge of arrogance that I see. So because yeah. you, you're, you're, you have a lot of humility. You're actually a pretty humble guy. So that was just what's interesting about that. Well, I, you know what, and, and I, I appreciate that, and and I maybe I I should give credit where credit's due. There, I, I met some friends very early on, and and you know we we had a lot of fun together. We traveled together, but there was just a way that they communicated, and I kind of came into this group. But it was all positive. There was no ego. Some guys were were succeeding some years. Other guys were not having a great time, and it was just a very um, like a sharing sort of community. And I really, like, I, I just fell in love with it. It's, it's an amazing way to support and be supported. Uh, but that just doesn't work if, if you have an ego and you think you're better than someone. Because ultimately, you could be the best business person in the world. But I mean, I can learn something from mm-hmm. this janitor or that painter or, you know, even the homeless person in front of the hotel that I, you know, like, I think you can learn something from absolutely everyone on the planet. Do you think that at a, a young age that you saw yourself this way? Do you think that, you know, could you, if you think back to when you were a kid growing up and maybe early teens or even pre-teen, do you think you had a vision for yourself of being, I don't know, for lack of better words, a high roller, somebody in a corner office, somebody that was uber successful? Um, Did you have those kind of visions as a kid growing up? You know what? I always, 
I, like, I, you know, I grew up on a farm and, you know, the first 10 years of my, my life, it was like, okay, mom and dad had kids for free slave labor, which, you know, they now laugh and say that was true. I do. I have, I love my parents. We have a phenomenal relationship, much better than when I was the rebellious, uh, the rebellious teenager. Um, so like I came out of it with just a great work ethic and then, you know, I did want a lot of things and, uh, you know, I learned that if I worked harder, I could have things. And then, you know, I had a lot of things and then that didn't bring me happiness. And I, I'm glad I got that out of my, my life early on. And, and, but then all of a sudden there was like this, this confidence and excitement that, you know, we can help people and create things, but it just, it's so much more fun when you do it together and, and just enjoy and celebrate those wins, you know, as a, as a family, if you will. You know, you are, uh, you, you, you are in behind the scenes, you do some charitable stuff and you have been in the past involved in some, some cool initiatives. Um, what do you want to plug right now? What do you want to, what do you want to share? <laughs> well, probably, I mean, the most fun one we ever did was that garage sale, uh, you know, there's a luxury auction, like houses, cars, boats, planes, and then 1% of everything sold went to charity. And it was, it was amazing. Um, you know, our friend Alex kind of took that and ran with it and it was, uh, the garage sale auction events and I, he's since sold that, but you know, that raised a lot of money and that was incredibly fun. And, you know, that kind of gave me a taste for, you know, like what's better than having a party and, and creating some good with it. You know, that was really enjoyable Sure. Uh, and it made a difference. So I, you know, for me, I, I always try and, you know, find a good charity, um, and like, you know, I, I, going back to when I was younger, like I didn't, I never really expected to be able to be at this level and, and it's, it's amazing to be here. And I, I kind of feel a duty to, to give back and, you know, leave the world a better place than, than when I entered it in any little way that I possibly can. But I want to have fun when I'm doing it. And, and again, for me, I always look at charities flow through rates. Like if we're making a donation, how much of that money actually gets to the ground, right? And we met Scott Harrison from Charity Water. Uh, and I love their model. Like it's a hundred percent. He has one party every year and it's just full transparency. It's radical transparency. You're like tonight, if you come and support me here, you are paying for the operation of the charity. And here are our financials. Here's how much money I make. Here's how much money I spend on travel last year. Here's how much money... Julie, our social media coordinator makes like everything's laid out and people choose to support it. And then 364 days a year, if you say, I want my money to go to this water project in Africa, a hundred percent of your money goes there. And I just, I love that. Like it was totally turning the charitable world on its head. And you know, that's something I want to get behind. Um, so we do a lot of work with charity water. Charity water for listeners. That's something you need to Google charity water. It's an amazing story. Oh, super cool. And like you, such a great storyteller too. Yeah, like for sure. Marketing. And yeah, yeah, it's amazing. A good friend of mine, actually, he was in the real estate business uh, in Victoria. He, he had uh, the condo group and, you know, I met Taylor quite early on and then he had a very life changing trip and, and sort of sold his real estate business and got into philanthropy full time. And um, so we, we built a number of schools and education program or like I like hard assets that you can invest in and they'll continue to give back. Like there's a, there's a do good income stream that comes out of it. So we built a number of schools in, in third world countries 
and a number of libraries. And that was with the MeToWe Foundation, which is Free the Children. Yes. And and that's been just, you know, that's been an incredible experience too. They they their donor recognition programs, like they make it really, really fun for you to be involved. And we actually got all our real estate clients involved and they loved it. Cause it's like, hey, we rallied together and built this school. And then for the next year, we could give them updates on its construction. And you know, it was a great marketing tool. And we created some good and everyone had fun. So that's like the the trifecta. Cool. You know, we uh we gotta start to wind down here. Like I, okay. I, I haven't even I feel like I haven't even started sometimes because I mean you got so much to offer. You're probably like so many of my guests, I I think you have to end up with a part two at some place. So um, as I wind down the show, I like to just do some rapid fire questions. And but before right. I do that, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about. So you're really dialed in. You're a high energy guy. You're a good sales guy. You're well read. You're well studied. How do you look after yourself? So do you have a morning routine? Do you have an evening routine? Oh, gosh, I'm I'm not like especially with all this travel. Yeah. Um, like keeping any type of routine has been really really challenging. Yeah, you're talking. Um, about, yeah, I get it. I don't sit well during like if I'm if I've got a long day of conference calls, like I'll put some running shoes on and a headset on, and I like I'll walk around whatever city I'm in. But just like I I fundamentally like make a point of of trying to get a workout in because ultimately it's the only body I'm ever going to have and. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to rob from my later self now just to get some success. So really making time. Um, however, I, I feel wrong saying that because I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not even very... None of us I'm, are. I'm, I'm, <laughs> level, I'm a good level. I'm a C plus student in that game right now. It, it's interesting that, uh, so a guest that I had on, on previously was uh, an Olympic swimmer, uh, diver, sorry. And when it, we talked about working out and what he said is that, I don't work out every day. I can't. And I, cause I travel extensively and, but he says, one thing that I always do, he says, is I always, even if it's a 30 second downward dog, I do it because I'm actually yeah. telling my body that I'm doing exercise. So when we create habits, we get out of the habit. So this is a little bit tip that he taught me, which is I can always take 60 seconds, 30 seconds to do a couple of downward dog and yoga poses. And, but that's hardwiring my brain and my body that I'm doing a workout. So I don't all of a sudden fall right off the cliff of working out. So there's a little tip for you. I appreciate and, and I appreciate that. That's, I'm going to put that on my list. Cause I do like, I have a coach, um, for this, you know, just sort of mental clarity and, and fitness. And I check in with her or like, ultimately we track those numbers and I'm a big, like, uh, from Fitbits to like Apple watches yeah, yeah. to my move ring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like move, move aura rings yeah. are actually great. Yeah. You track my sleep and figure out, okay, like, Hey, I've actually got to make more time because like, this has been a really bad week. I do eat really, really healthy though. Like mm-hmm. dad raised this with like, eat, eat more food, less food, like substances and you'll be fine. And that's always stuck with me. Um, so even like when we're out, you know, we, I, I'll, eat at restaurants where, you know, there's no preservatives and like no fast food and all that kind of stuff. Cause I really just found that that slowed me down and made me feel real bad. Do you journal? Do you meditate? Any of that stuff that you squeeze in? Both. Yeah. Both, so yeah. I actually, I have a phenomenal, I fell in love with this journal program called day one, mm-hmm. but it'll, I, I can put photos in there and yeah. it'll track like locations and dates and I can put a bunch of stuff in there. 
And, you know, I started more just to kind of keep all of this craziness and all of these experiences and all of these incredible moments kind of together. But it's been incredibly therapeutic for me and, and I love it. But day one was a game changer because I didn't always have paper and pen around and I like the multimedia side of it. Yeah, I learned about a. I, I've I've been I've journaled for I don't know thirty years. So journaling has always been a part of my life, and I and I and I don't necessarily do it every single day, but I do it often, and I'll fall off for a while and come back on. And last year was a journal around stoicism, and I I studied Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and all the 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 oh, cool. great Stoics of the world, and that was really and you journal every day with it. That was kind of a cool program that I was part of, and and I recently downloaded an app called the Five Minute Journal which is really yep. kind of effective. It's kind of cool. So good. I'm glad Ooh. that uh, that's kind of... Is that... So I, I'm a huge fan. I have the the paperback version of that. Alex Icon and the guys who made that are, are friends of mine in an entrepreneur group yeah. I'm part of. Yeah, they're ki- I, I think they're killing it. It's um, it's an amazing... Like someone who's new to journaling, like I, I would hand yeah. that to my staff. Like yeah. mom and dad got get those every year at Christmas. Yeah. And like, I, I love... That's a phenomenal tool. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's a great, great tool. Okay, so what are you reading these days? What What's a, what's a book that was really impactful or what's a book that you've... Aside from the five-minute journal, what, what's what's a book that you've done really on? really impactful and and reading right now? So actually, I'm reading the uh, Patagonia founders book right now, which is really really great. You know, impactful books. Oh gosh, like the Saint, the Surfer, and the CEO. Anything by Simon Sinek, Richard Branson stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm I love the great business books. Like sink your teeth into it. Napoleon Hill, of course. Yeah. That's a must read. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. What's your favorite swear word? You want me, can I say it? Of course. Yeah. The versatility of fuck is quite amazing. It is. I think it's, (laughs) it is the most important word. Yeah. Um, At certain times, you know, there is no doubt about it. Fuck is a good one. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Be the change you wish to see in the world. Oh, such a good one. Because you're of yeah. that, I know you're of that mindset too, which is aside from what you do, it's who you're being in the doing this, right? And uh, in order to create change, you have to be that change. Yeah. I would say followed very closely by like Da Vinci. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Uh, I wish I would have learned that one earlier. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the pearly gates? I, I, you know what, I'd, I'd actually just like to go back and, and have a lot of great stories of people's lives that we've affected or touched. Like, I think that's, you know, the whole side of like the new idea of a billionaire is somebody who can affect positively affect a billion lives. Like, so when you get to the gates, you'd like to go, God high, high five you and go, you nailed it. I'm proud of you for that. Yeah. On a scale of one to 10, how weird do you think you are? Oh, it's like a 12. Really? Hey, so it's interesting. <laughs> I, I always get different answers. I always think that everybody's going to say 12. You did. And um, I, I, I probably would agree with that a little bit. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Thank you. <laughs> so what are you just not very good at, Joel? Oh, I mean, the funniest thing for, for like a numbers guy, like I, not that I'm not very good at it, but like I always have to have an accountant and like someone to like pull all of my expenses and everything together. Like I use Evernote and I take photos of it and I've got systems built for it. And it was like the most liberating, amazing thing ever. 
Because when I'd come home from all this travel and I'd have like a shoebox full of receipts and like knowing how important that is and that I need to do it, I would just avoid it like the plague. And I was terrible with that. Uh, that's such a big one for me too. It's such a big, big button. Evernote. And I'll share my system. Well, in so Evernote. You're going to have to share because I'm a, I'm an Evernote fan. And, uh, but man, oh man. And then I'm, I'm quite fortunate is that I have, uh, you know, I have a, some team that will take my receipts, but even me just not losing receipts, like as oh. hard as I try <laughs> and I have systems and it doesn't seem to matter. Receipts disappear. Well, for the listeners, it's super simple. I have an Evernote notebook for each of the credit cards I use. Electronic. Evernote is electronic. Electronic, yeah. So in there, there's a notebook. And so if I pay for it with my Amex, I take out my phone, snap a photo of it, upload it into the Amex one, crumple up the receipt, throw it away. And those notebooks are shared with my assistants. So at the end of the month, they get the statement. They have access to all the bills. And then I just, it's totally out of sight, out of mind. All I have to do is remember to take the photo. And then I get to crumple it up and throw it away. And I don't have to carry it, which is like my reward. Oh, <laughs> that's good. Okay, I'm going to share that with a couple of people that um, that are, uh, I'm at the effect of them not doing well with their receipts. And and I'm really good at it, but I still, not, yeah, I'll take it up another level. <laughs> uh, that's a good tip though. Um, room desk or your car, what do you clean first? Room, desk, or car? Yeah. Desk. Your desk. Your de- clean desk. desk. I thought you'd say car because you're a bit of a car guy. I, You know what? I, I, I have a great guy who like details my car and I take it to him quite religiously. Right. Because okay. ultimately like cleaning my house and cleaning my car, I, like I, I need a clean car. I need a clean house. Yeah. But I just, I, that's another thing I don't do well and I don't like. Yeah, I'm built that way too. Uh, I need a clean yeah. car and a clean house, but I don't do either. And Stephanie never cleans a car and, and I do, which I don't expect her to. And that's just the role that I play often. And sometimes I take actually a little bit of, um, I like cleaning the car. Sometimes you get it done and my cars never get really bad, but when it's done, yeah. it's nice and clean and you feel like you've accomplished something, you know? I, I said desk so quickly because like ultimately someone cleaning my desk would give me crazy anxiety. Cause like those piles have organization. <laughs> Leave my piles on the desk alone. That's great. Do you have a favorite tune? Yeah, like some good Sinatra. I was, you know, airports. I love Andrea Bocelli or like some calming music yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Little Empire State of Mind, Alicia Keys and Jay Z. That's a good pump up song. Cool. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Depends on the mood for sure. Shuffle on my iPod is an experience. Do you have a favorite movie? Thomas Crown Affair, definitely up there. Listen, if you haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody yet. Oh, it's amazing. Amazing. That actually went up probably to my top movie right now. I would have Ooh. to say top five for sure. Love yep. that movie. That was like, wow. Yeah. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Telling everybody to watch it. I would go to it. I would have gone to it the next night after I saw it. Like I would have seen it again. That's, that's it's the impact. So and I think it, it also took me back into that time in my life. Yeah. So I think that's, there was some connection there for me too. So anyways, that's great. I haven't asked this question before of a guest, but I'm going to ask you, do you have a top travel tip? Because you're a traveler and most of my guests actually yeah. do travel quite extensively. Do you have a top travel tip? Uh, so <laughs> if you ask anyone who travels with me, Carry on only. Oh, 100%. Always. 100%. Always. 
Yeah. I changed flights too much, like getting to the airport, like even today, right? Got to the airport, meetings were done early. Hey, do you have a seat on an earlier flight? You bet. It leaves in an hour. Like, oh, we've already closed. Do you have bags to check? Nope. Great. I can get on it. If I said yes, there would be no way. That would definitely be be one of them for sure. It's the longest trip you ever went on with carry-on. Oh, gosh. I've done... With that group that I was telling you about, we were doing 10 days in Sydney, Australia from Vancouver. And I sent an email out to the guys because we all travel that way. But just as a little gentle reminder, I said, guys, uh, plane lands at 12.15. Limo picks us up at 12.30. Feel free to check a bag, but get your own ride. Right. Make the <laughs> rules, man. If you're... Yeah. yeah. I, I, Yeah. That's a, a, a bit of a challenge uh, with some individuals. And, and, and because I often travel with women that's tougher that's tougher for them so they can pull it off but it is much harder for them there's just no doubt as guys we're pretty fortunate that way very absolutely what are you grateful for joel oh just every single day like i i literally have never worked so hard in my life but i've never had so much fun in my life and like every experience like just the whole, every day it's it's just it's it's amazing i just i enjoy every moment of it and the experiences the things i've seen the people i've met uh, uh life good for you so grateful for life i'm always grateful for the guests on my show in this case i'm i'm really grateful to have gotten to know you a few years back and uh, we don't cross paths often enough but when we do it's always epic and and we were able to do that a month ago or whenever the hell that was and uh, it was really great to catch up to you again and yeah. and connect so it was it's always awesome. a pleasure seeing you guys so that's a wrap man any big parting words you want to share with the listener oh gosh i wish i had some time to to prep I would literally just just go back and re, re you know listen to that section where we were saying, I really wish I had done all these things originally and slowed down in the diligence and having those conversations. Just uh, play that again. Play that again. Thanks, pal. Appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you again, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.